Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. It's the Velvet's Edge podcast with Kelly Henderson. Okay, it's the month of love, and we've been talking a lot about love and relationships and sex and all the things we miss in our society as far as how to do it. And a lot of the conversation in relationships these days tends to be around attachment style. So I have had a couple people on the podcast that talk about anxious attachment. But I've had so many requests from you guys wanting to know more about avoidant attachment style. So Coach Ryan Holly, relationship and dating expert, is here to talk with us about that today. Hi, Coach Ryan. Hey, how you doing? I love, I refer to you as my friends. I'm like, Coach Ryan said X, Y, and Z <laughs> all the time. You're like a new, new part of my friend circles conversation. <laughs> happy to be so. Well, the reason I was so drawn to your work is because you do these videos on, well, I've seen them on Instagram. I know they're on TikTok as well, but they state the the basics and also kind of the intricacies of attachment style in a way that is so digestible to me and doesn't like overwhelm me. It's It just makes it easier to understand. And so I messaged you and I was like, are you a recovering avoidant? Like, how do you know so much about avoidant attachment? <laughs> So tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing with your clients and just how you're getting into like so much talk about avoidant attachment. Well, um, you know, I do a specialized focus on attachment when it comes to relationships and dating. And uh, no, I'm not a recovering avoidant. Um, I have just had experiences with them in my life and, you know, long, long healed from that stuff, but it I generated a fascination with it. Ended up, uh, you know, pursuing this uh, after doing tons of research and hiring a 
licensed psychotherapist as a, you know, a coach and mentor to myself, ended up, you know, going down this route and becoming a, a relationship and dating coach myself. And since attachment is such an important part mm. of relationships, it really help it, understanding it really helps give you a roadmap, a framework of understanding what is and understanding what's your own stuff, what what is from the other person, what motivates people to behave the way they do, where does it come from? It helps you navigate and understand a relationship as well as your your own life. Because when people don't have that roadmap, they tend to uh, often engage in repetitive, not maladaptive mm -hmm. behaviors, things that are actually harming you when you're when you're really trying to uh, you know forge forward with a healthy relationship. So yeah, understanding attachment really is a a really key part to becoming a healthier person yourself and maintaining a healthy relationship. So that's that's why it's been such a hot topic these days. Well, I love that you just mentioned the reason that people should look at this stuff is because you can find yourself in these perpetual cycles of just the same behavior. And it's like, you're doing a different relationship with a different person, but it looks the exact same. So can you kind of explain like, what is an attachment style? Do we all have them? Everybody has one. Okay. Now, there are really three main attachment styles. Um, well, it's actually two main ones. Let me explain. So they're secure. Secure yes. based are people that you know, everybody has their insecurities. Don't misunderstand. Everybody on earth has insecurities, but people that are secure based, they have the skills to self-regulate. They have the skills to manage relationships in a responsive way, not a reactive way, meaning they're using their logical brain to handle situations, not so much their emotional brain. They're not letting the emotions control them. People that are insecurely attached. Now, insecurely attached is the other main one, but there's really two. There's avoidant and anxious attachment that are within the insecure okay. spectrum. Now, attachment, it comes from childhood. It's learned from childhood. It is a learned behavior. It is not who you are as a person. Like any learned behavior, it can be unlearned. As a child, you you don't have much control over your life. You Your parents tell you when you can eat. Your parents tell you when you're going to school, what you're wearing. So the one thing that you do have the ability to do is to manage your interaction and your relationship with your parents and do it in a way that protects you as a child from whatever's going on. And you're born with your temperament. Everybody's born with that. So you take your temperament, your environment, and that's where attachment is learned. Okay. So people that have uh, childhoods where they may have been chaotic, mm -hmm. um, maybe parents were not emotionally available, um, there could have been trauma, maybe not trauma, maybe just emotional distance that can create someone to either go down an anxious or an avoidant route. Okay. And the, the person will help determine whether they gravitate towards anxiety, anxiousness, or avoidance. So and your personality dictates that? It helps dictate you... it. Okay. Okay. It's not the only factor. Your yeah. environment plays a role, but your personality. But the way you respond to your environment. Okay, that mm -hmm. makes sense to me. Okay. So you're in your childhood, all these things are happening. And then because of whatever effect it has on you, you begin to respond to people and relationships in this certain type of attachment style. You do. And your attachment style really is a reactive behavior. Yeah. Um, you're not really thinking about it logically. You feel an emotional stimulus and then you do a behavior just based on the emotion. And that is what protected you as a kid. But as an adult, if it's insecure, that is, 
it can lead to uh, harmful behaviors that hurt yourself, hurt your relationships. And you can find yourself in this cycle that you don't know why, but it just perpetuates. Having an understanding of attachment really helps you open your eyes and really see what's going on within yourself mm-hmm. and others and make better informed decisions and be able to better navigate a relationship. Yeah. Well, I love the point you made too, because I have had a friend, a couple friends actually going through certain things and they're like, I know this is just like my anxious attachment. And I'm like, no, anyone in that situation would feel anxious. Like just because you're secure, doesn't mean it takes away normal human emotion. Right. But, but you're explaining it in such a good way to where you say, the, when you know the attachment style is activated is because it's so reactive. Like you can't regulate yourself. You can't calm yourself down. Yes. Both anxious people and avoidance, when they have the emotional trigger, they react. Right. And they act in different ways to the same anxiety. Because keep in mind, anxiety is at the core of insecure attachment, whether it's avoidant or anxious. So people that are avoidant, their natural tendency on how to deal and cope with emotional and relationship stress is to not deal with it, to dodge mm-hmm. it, push it away. They don't like to face their feelings. They don't like to face their fears. And they tend to shut down and run away from confrontation. And they tend to, uh, when they feel their fears triggered, they tend to shut down and run away in general. Okay. Their whole method of coping is to not cope, essentially. Okay. Um, but you know, running away from a problem in life tends to not make it go away. If anything, it can get bigger and bigger and bigger. So a reaction would be, let's say, uh, a, t- a typical, um, provoking, uh, emotional trigger could be that the relationship is going well. And because of their insecurities, feeling like they're not good enough for a healthy partner and avoidance reaction is they feel anxiety because they feel like ultimately this person's going to figure out I'm not good enough. They're going to abandon me. They're going to reject me. So the reaction to that feeling is to shut down, pull away, and possibly even end the relationship as a way to protect themselves from the inevitable abandonment. So even when the relationship is going well, though, because that seems so counterintuitive. The better the relationship is, the more they run from it. The severe avoidance, that is. Because yeah. they, they they feel unsafe and healthy relationships and they feel very safe and toxic relationships. It's not that they consciously think to themselves that they want a toxic relationship, but they do gravitate towards them. Mm-hmm. And that's because the, the deep down core wounds that they have from childhood, typically an avoidant did not receive a lot of love and affection from parents, that they feel like they're unlovable. And because they didn't get love as a child, not in the way that they needed. So they carry that through to adulthood, feeling less than, not worthy. So when a healthy partner comes along, they feel like they're not worthy of this, not worthy of being treated that well. And keep in mind, the the avoidant, the way that they uh, operate is to put a castle wall around their their heart. They don't let anybody... They're they're what you call emotionally unavailable people. Um, Now, they can seem like they are in the beginning, but at the end, they really aren't. Now, with a toxic partner, A toxic partner is generally somebody who is emotionally unavailable themselves. So the avoidant does not feel pressure to be emotionally available for a partner that is also emotionally unavailable. Mm. They don't feel pressure to be vulnerable for somebody who is not vulnerable with them. Mm -hmm. That makes them feel safe. Plus, the toxic partner is nothing all that special. And the avoidant doesn't have the fear of abandonment from somebody that's not that special. Now, with a healthy partner, a healthy partner is emotionally available. A healthy partner is also emotionally vulnerable. And the avoidant feels an unspoken pressure to be emotionally available and vulnerable with the toxic, I mean, with the healthy partner. And that makes them feel unsafe. So 
subconsciously, deep down, in a healthy relationship, avoidance feel emotionally unsafe. And in a toxic relationship, they feel quite comfortable and safe. So that's why you'll see many people that are severely avoidant, they will refuse to commit or put a label on a relationship right. with a healthy partner. But then they can jump into a toxic partner relationship with like a narcissist or borderline or something like that. And they can immediately commit. They can immediately commit. Sorry, I just thought that just like threw me. Yeah. Oh, I have so it, many questions. It's, it's because the person's toxic and it makes them feel safe. So then they're safe because it's the familiar. I also like, I'm curious if if they were in a relationship, if someone has an, an, an avoidant attachment or an unhealed avoidant attachment, let's say, and they're meeting someone secure, they're in this relationship, they're going back and forth. Is it common then because the secure partner's wanting a healthy relationship for them to kind of sabotage the relationship to make it toxic? Not necessarily sabotage to make it toxic. What they'll do is they'll just abruptly end it out of nowhere. There's gone. They're just gone. Like everything seems fine. It's an extended honeymoon phase. The secure partner feels like they have met their 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 match, their person. Yeah. And then um one day, and usually after a significant event, like you know, you went on a long vacation together that went well, or you or you, you just met each other's families. And one day out of the blue, the avoidance sends a text, I can't give you what you need. Um, you know, I'm not ready for a relationship, and that's it. They're then and, and they give you no other answer other than that. They run away, they cower, they lock, that's it, they're gone. And so that's why the person on the other side of that is like, wait, what? Like, Blind. it's just blindsided. Yeah. So I think the interesting thing about attachment and the way that we're seeing it play out on social media is often it's kind of the avoidant is the villainized person. And then the anxious side is not necessarily talked about that way. I mean, I think both are starting to be talked about a little differently where it's like, no, both of these are not healthy in a relationship. But I do feel like the avoidant gets a little more villainized and I'm assuming it's because the painful behavior, like just up and leaving a normal relationship or any, like just kind of what the nature of their attachment style playing out looks like. Is that true? Or why is that, that the avoidant gets so villainized? The avoidant gets villainized. Um, yes, that's true. And now keep in mind, both severely anxious and severely avoidant, uh, attachments are toxic for relationships. They sure. are because there's different issues that they cause. The reason the avoidant gets villainized, there's a couple reasons for it. Okay. They're the ones that abruptly end a relationship that seems good. The anxious person doesn't do that. That is the avoidant that does the discard, as it's called. Because when avoidants break up, they typically don't break up with you. They discard you. Mm -hmm. And the why it's called the discard is because it is you didn't see it coming. It's unilateral. There were no warning signs. And you were denied a voice in it whatsoever. And often they just ghost you. Yeah. And everything seems wonderful. You're, you're, you're having plans to maybe even get married and all of a sudden gone. They don't even text you. They're disappeared. Like they never, like you never existed. So the, the, the abrupt traumatic nature of the way they end it is largely why they get villainized. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, and also they, they don't give closure because keep in mind, people that are uh, severely avoidant, Self-reflection is kryptonite to these people. Mm. They uh, Because they spend a lifetime dodging this stuff, they don't want to face their feelings or fears. Because when you self-reflect, you have to face your emotions. You have to take ownership of your behaviors. You have to take accountability. And that's painful for an avoidant to do because their method of dealing with pain is to avoid it. So they don't self-reflect. Mm -hmm. And because they don't self-reflect, it's very difficult for an avoidant person to grow emotionally. They can do it, but they have to force themselves to self-reflect in a way they never have. Also, 
because they don't self-reflect, they have a very difficult time expressing their feelings because they feel it, but they don't know how to talk about it since they don't have a process to think about their feelings. Mm -hmm. Whereas an anxious person can be very smothering in a relationship, which can be very difficult, but an anxious person tends to over self-reflect. An anxious person has an easier time healing and becoming more secure than an avoidant person does. And that's because the anxious person is willing to self-reflect and the avoidant typically is not. Okay. That makes so much sense. It is hard because it's like, obviously up and leaving like a discard, like you say, would be very painful. But the word that keeps coming to my mind is also, it just feels dismissive. And I like the way that that would be if you're in a relationship feels like, okay, wait, we were just saying we love each other or we care about each other. Obviously we're in a relationship and then you just are gone like that, or you shut down or you whatever. And so I would imagine it's just like a super dismissive feeling, which is where people are just getting really angry and obviously villainizing the avoidant. And that's why, uh, you know, there's two types of avoidance. And one of them, the primary one is a dismissive avoidant. What does that that. mean? So dismissive avoidance are really essentially pure, pure avoidance. They, their, their, their coping mechanism is to avoid and dismiss the feelings of the other person. Okay. Now, the other kind of avoidant is a fearful avoidant, which is also known as an anxious avoidant or a covert avoidant, multiple names for it. That is an avoidant that also has some anxious tendencies too. It's actually really disorganized attachment. Mm. So early on in a relationship, the fearful avoidant will come across like an anxious attacher. They may seem clingy. They may seem needy. But as the relationship progresses, the anxious switch goes off and the avoidance switch goes on. And then they just essentially become a dismissive avoidant, which can really blindside someone because they they might have think they actually found somebody who's anxious, not avoidant. And mm-hmm. that's something you can work with in a relationship. And lo and behold, or their horror, they find out, nope, it's just an avoidant. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Were you going to say something else? Yeah. It, um, fearful avoidance have a little bit of a different uh type of childhood than a dismissive avoidant. Dismissive okay. avoidant has a childhood where the parents are just emotionally unavailable. A, dis, uh, a fearful avoidant will typically have a childhood where the parents are emotionally unavailable and are dysregulated, where their parents are kind of explosive, a little bit unhinged. <laughs> so that can create the anxiety as well as the emotional abandonment. Okay. So that's the one we hear about that's called, you said, disorganized sometimes too. Yes. Because you're going back and forth and back and forth. That actually leads me, a friend of mine um, who actually requested that I have you on, she said, yeah, I'm just, I get so confused because I don't know how to identify which one I am. Like, I know that something is wrong in my dating life. Like, I keep, she's saying what we were saying about, she keeps repeating the same patterns. But she said, I just feel confused, like, Sometimes I resonate as anxious and sometimes I resonate resonate with the avoidant piece. And so maybe it's something like that, like what you're talking about, because explain to me how it can start as anxiousness. Well, the anxious attachment, you know, you learn from a childhood that you are responsible for other people's feelings and emotions that you take on personal responsibility for it. And you usually grew up in a more chaotic environment. And is the people pleaser. You know, you mm-hmm. feel like you're responsible for other people's feelings, but your own feelings, if you express them, you're being selfish. You're being, you know, you're being bad. So from the chaotic part of their environment, that that anxiousness will, will come to light. And usually in the beginning of a relationship, well, that's when you want to get the person to like you. You want the validation. So that's why the anxiousness is triggered because it's new, it's fresh, and everybody likes to get validated. Everybody likes sure. to so that's that triggers that anxiety within the fearful avoidant um, early on. 
And what happens is, though, as the relationship progresses and becomes more real, it's no longer just a fantasy. It's no longer just a romance novel. As it becomes real, that's when the avoidant fears come in because this person feels unlovable. They feel unworthy. That stuff gets triggered. And then they just turn into a dismissive avoidant, essentially. And they do the discard and all that in the same way. So they, okay. So they are experiencing anxiety, though. Oh, actually, even dismissive avoidance do. Absolutely. Oh, okay. So both anxiously attached and dismissive avoidance, they feel anxiety. The difference is how the person reacts to their anxiety. An anxious okay. attachment behaves in a very anxious way, tries to control the situation, tries to manage it, tries to really sink their claws into it. Whereas a dismissive avoidant, they feel the same amount of anxiety, but their reaction is to try to suppress it, to try to run from it, to not face the problem. Okay, so there's anxiety happening on both sides. It's just the reaction. That makes sense. Yes. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. 
she would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So I know a lot of people feel, like you said earlier, even anxious, anxious attachment people tend to have an easier time healing towards a more secure attachment, which is something I resonate with in my life. And um, I've never fully understood why, like the avoidant attachment partners that I've dated in the past seem to really not want to do any sort of self-reflection or whatever. So that's a part of it. But can they, can avoidant attachments then heal and become secure? Is that possible if they're not willing to self-reflect? It is possible. Now, while they're not willing to self-reflect, obviously some are and they can heal. So what it really usually takes for an avoidant to get to the point where they are willing to self-reflect, where they are willing to make the change and commit to it, they usually have to hit rock bottom. Now, rock bottom doesn't mean that they lose their house or job or anything of the sort. But what it can mean is they can, because of their behaviors, because of their avoidant behaviors, they could potentially lose or actually lose somebody they really did love and care about. Mm. They lost somebody in their life that deep down they didn't want to lose because of their own behavior. And that pain can become so great that they say, I don't want to go through this ever again. I'll do whatever it takes. And then they start to actually self-reflect and look within. Can they do it? Sure. Actually, it happens more often than people think. But they have to be the ones to want it. It has to come from them. If you're the partner of the avoidant, whether you're secure or anxious, no matter how much you beg and plead, if they're not willing to do it, if they don't want it badly, they won't do it. But if they want it badly, they can heal and become secure. Absolutely, they can. But it it actually, a lot of times, if you're trying to push someone to get help, I mean, this is, this is even just in general in life. It's like, whether it was addiction or attachment style or whatever, it's like, it does have to be the person's decision. Because I know too, like, there have been times where I've experienced where I was really pushing it, but it almost made it worse for my partner. Like, they didn't want to do it specifically because I was pushing it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You're 100% right. And often people's response, keep in mind, insecure people. Now, that can be anxious people, that can be avoidant, and that can also be people who have addiction problems and things like that, because those all come from insecurities. That's true. Yeah, that's a good point. Insecure people tend to be more fragile, Mm -hmm. and that's because of their insecurities. The reason why insecure people are fragile is because of their insecurities. Let me explain why. People People that are insecure assign underlying meanings to things, underlying meanings that don't exist. So let's just say in a relationship, for example, you're in a a married relationship and Let's say the husband's uh, the husband's job was to take out the roll at the trash that day, and he forgot to do so. And the wife okay. comes up, and says, "Oh, you forgot to take out the trash." Now, the event at hand is really just that the trash was not taken out, right, and got missed. But the husband gets all defensive. Yeah, he get defensive just over the trash, and when he can easily go, "Oh, you're right, I forgot." He gets defensive because he assigned an underlying meaning. So his underlying meaning, which Usually it's not based in reality, but it's it's because of insecurities would be she's criticizing me for the trash because she thinks I'm stupid. She thinks I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. She, she thinks I'm not lovable. Those kind of underlying meanings that he's assigned to her displeasure over the trash when in reality, it was just about the trash. Right. It's the underlying meanings. It's the underlying insecurities that people um, assign to things that makes them more fragile. So 
when you're criticizing, even if it's constructive criticism, when you're criticizing someone that's insecure, they don't handle it well because they assign an underlying meaning to your criticism and it becomes all encompassing. Mm -hmm. So you may be criticizing one small thing like, hey, um, could you try doing this this way instead? And instead of just being about the item at hand, the insecure person will take it as an all out assault on them that they are Mm -hmm. terrible people, Mm -hmm. even when it's not the case. It's the underlying meaning. So people that are insecure apply that and that's why it's so hard to actually criticize an insecure person and have them take it well because they're so fragile. Well, and that's the kind of thing, too, where the underlying message probably wasn't created in that relationship, right? Like, I'm assuming a lot of times that was often created in childhood. And so it's not really something as an adult, if you're in a relationship with an insecure person, that you could even fix or, like, do anything about because you don't, you're not even aware it was there because it happened so long ago. Exactly. And it usually comes from childhood. Now, relationships and events that happen in our adult lives can deepen old wounds, though. For example, let's take you can have uh, a situation where let's say you have somebody who's mildly anxious, just mild, Mm -hmm. go through a relationship or a marriage to a narcissist and come out severely anxious. So events and, um, and relationships that you do have as adults can exaggerate previous old wounds. But the stuff usually comes from childhood. That makes sense. Why, since you mentioned narcissists, let's talk about what is the difference between narcissist and avoidance? Because I know a lot of times those are often kind of intermingled and there are differences. I mean, I know some narcissists are some avoidance are narcissists, but not all. So can you kind of talk us through that a little bit? Well, the vast majority of avoidance are not narcissists, um, but narcissists at their core are avoiders. So now, that doesn't mean that all narcissists behave as avoidant attachers. Some of them actually can be quite clingy and anxious or disorganized. But narcissists, at their core, they are very, very um, traumatized, wounded, unhealed people. And what they do is they create a false self-image of this person that is benevolent, that is perfect, that makes no mistakes, that's charming, witting, sm- charming, witting, uh, witting smart, and you know, sassy, sexy, all the positive yeah. attributes you can think of. And that's the image they project to the world. They do that to mask their inner pain, to avoid it. They don't want to avoid facing their inner pain and trauma. So they create this this very self-absorbed persona. But as a mask, it's all a mask to hide the inner pain, which is essentially a method of avoidance because they're avoiding that pain. That makes sense. Okay. Now, narcissists do have behavior that can overlap with dismissive avoidance, like discarding somebody. Uh, potentially cheating on them, things like that. But there are some distinct differences between an avoidant and a narcissist. First of all, avoidant attachment is just an attachment style. It is a learned behavior that can be unlearned. True narcissism is a personality disorder. Mm. It's not just an attachment style. And can narcissists change? That's up for debate. There are some self-aware ones out there. They're far and few between. Um, Now, narcissists tend to completely lack empathy. They're cold. They don't really have the ability to love people. They don't love people. They love the attention they get from people. There's a difference. Mm. Um, Whereas avoidance, dismissive avoidance, fearful avoidance, they can love, they can feel empathy, um, and they can heal and change, and they do so all the time. Um, And they generally are not nearly as cold and nasty and cruel as a narcissist can be. So avoidance do feel empathy, though, because that, to me, sometimes, like, the discard, the the avoiding behaviors that they do because they feel so anxious, 
like being on the other side of that, it doesn't feel like an avoidant has any sort of concept what their behavior might make someone else feel like. Not at all. Okay. So a narcissist, when they discard you, they're never going to feel bad about it. They're just never right. And avoidant, because they're heightened in that avoidant state, they're in a reactive mode. During that moment when they're discarding you, they are avoiding feeling the pain. They're avoiding feeling the empathy. That's correct. Okay. But as time goes by, that catches up with them. Mm-hmm. And they can often feel quite guilty for what they did to you. And it can actually lead towards them feeling a deeper sense of shame, telling themselves that they're bad people. Mm-hmm. And uh, shame is actually a toxic emotion. Regret means, well, I did, uh, you know, feeling guilty, regret, that means you did something wrong. That's your, mm-hmm. your mind telling you you did something wrong. Shame, on the other hand, is telling yourself, I am something wrong. And that's a toxic emotion. So they absolutely can feel empathy. The thing is, they don't always feel it at the appropriate time, but uh, but they do. And they, they, they can feel empathy in a way that a narcissist simply doesn't. Is this why avoidance tend to come back? Because yeah. it feels like that thing where it's like, the discard is fast. You don't know what is happening, which I feel like the older I've gotten, the more I'm like watching you know people do this or whatever. And I'm like, oh, they'll be back not just in my life, just in general, in the world, like, you know, they're coming back at some point. And so is it just that their feelings kick in later and then they come back? And then a lot of times I think it's too late or it should be. Well, it should be, but yes, it's because, so when the avoidant does the discard, they're in that heightened reactive mode, their emotions are triggered and all they want to do is escape. Yeah. Then after time goes by and they're no longer being chased, no longer being pursued, they allow themselves to take down that emotional brick wall and they start allowing themselves to access their feelings for you again. That's when they can feel deep regret, deep shame, deep remorse Mm -hmm. and miss you. And that's when they try to come back because they're allowing themselves to access those feelings again. And it's only when they feel safe and they feel safe when they're no longer pressured to be in a relationship with you. Yeah, but isn't that why the cycle continues? Yes, Because then it's like if if the other person lets them back in without doing any work, I would imagine then the second they start to get close again, they're gone again. That's why sometimes, you, especially if you see some of the the comments on some of my videos, people say, oh, it happened for the fifth time, sixth time, seventh time. Right. Cycle keeps on going, which is why I say, well, first of all, should anybody ever give an avoidant a second chance? That is for, that is up to the individual. They know this person. Can some avoidance change? Absolutely. Can they earn second chances and make it better? They absolutely can. It's perfectly okay if you feel like this person deserves a second chance. Mm-hmm. But I would not take them back unconditionally. I would take them back conditionally. You know, I'm open to rekindling this relationship, but this is what I need from you. Sure. And then hold some boundaries with this person. You know, that could include therapy. If you don't go to therapy and you can't and you don't commit to that then I can't be in this relationship. So that's the opportunity to capitalize on the fact that the avoidant is feeling regret and remorse for hurting you and wants to fix it and make them commit to doing some healing work. Because that gives you a better chance to actually have the the second or third go around with the relationship, be more successful and different. Because it can, they can do it. Um, But you have, but that's the key is that when you do take them back to make sure you're taking them back with conditions, set those boundaries being what you will and will not tolerate. If you take them back unconditionally, you just sweep what happened under the rug. They're going to do it to you again, most likely. Yeah. I was going to ask you how, if someone's listening and they're thinking, okay, maybe this is why my relationship has been so crazy as I'm with an avoidant attachment partner or avoidantly attached partner, um, and I want to set boundaries. Do you have any suggestions? Like, is it 
the therapy? Is this all personal? Is it that you need to be working with a therapist to come up with your own plan? Like, what is the best suggestion you would say to those listeners? Well, first of all, what you will and will not tolerate, your boundaries, what you will and will not take, what you want and don't want are up to each individual person. I can't tell you what your boundaries are or should be because everybody has a different tolerance and desires. But boundaries don't have to be something that are confrontational, right? So different examples of boundaries could be like, I will not get cheated on. If you cheat on me, I will leave the relationship. Mm. Or it could be something as simple as, I will not get screamed at. If you scream at me, I will remove myself from the situation until you calm down and then we can talk. Okay. Those are different boundaries. Boundaries don't have to be always these big encompassing things. They can be small things. But boundaries are really what define you as a person. That, that That's how you tell the partner and the world who you are, what you want, what you don't want, what you will take, what you won't take. Because if you don't define your boundaries, you're a blank slate and the other person right. can do whatever they want to you. And if you don't enforce your boundaries you're essentially canceling yourself. You're telling yourself that your wants, your feelings, your needs don't matter. Mm -hmm. And it's a bad feeling to let somebody trample over your boundaries because you're telling yourself you don't matter. But when you do enforce your boundaries, even though it's not fun to do so in the moment, you do feel better about yourself because you know you have your own back. You can rely on yourself to take care of your own wants and needs, even when it's difficult. And that's actually a self-esteem boost. It's a confidence boost. So setting those boundaries doesn't have to be confrontational. You can tell the person like, listen, this is what I want. This is what I don't want. This is what I need. This is what I don't need. And hey, this dynamic, I need communication from you. If you don't communicate with me, that's not something I can do. So there's different boundaries that you can set. Only you know what is right for you and what you're willing to tolerate or not tolerate and tolerate in the relationship. And a healthy partner, a person that loves you and cares about you will respect your boundaries and do their hardest to, to honor them. Can a healthy partner sometimes step over them by accident? Sure. But a healthy partner will recognize that, take ownership, and then try to do better. Mm -hmm. A toxic partner will does not care about your boundaries. Toxic partner loves their own boundaries. They don't like yours. Wait, what do you mean by that? Like a narcissist, for example. Okay. They have their boundaries. You better not cheat on them. You better not talk badly to them or anything like that. Right. They should be able to treat you however you, they, they want. And okay. you speak up if they do anything to you. Okay, that makes total sense. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. 
tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately $11 million. Nearly $10 million was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have a, one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so if you're like my friend who requested this podcast and you're thinking, I don't know what my attachment style is and I'm feeling anxious, but sometimes I avoid or whatever that would be, do you have suggestions to people of how to figure out what they are or what their style is? Well, it's it's going to require some self-reflection to uh, find out what your triggers are. Look in the past. Look where you've been triggered. And, you know, is it... And and are are you wanting to shut down? Are you wanting to pull away? Are you wanting to uh, kind of be a clinger in the relationship? Or are you both? Look at your own behaviors and your tendencies throughout the past. And it's going to give you the, uh, the the roadmap of what you are. I mean, someone like that sounds like they're probably disorganized. Yeah. Disorganized doesn't mean you're severely disorganized. You'd be mildly disorganized. If you're able to sustain a relationship, chances are you're not severe. If you're unable to sustain relationships, well, chances are you might be a bit more severe. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one way to always, what it doesn't matter whether you're disorganized, doesn't matter whether you're anxious or avoidant, if you want to center yourself, which is where everybody wants to be, you want to be centered and secure, is whenever those stressors arise, whenever the anxiety bubbles up, because it's anxiety, whether it's avoidant or anxious, anxiety, it's anxiety, is to ask yourself in the moment, how do I respond to this rather than react? Just ask yourself that question. When you ask yourself that question, you are shifting yourself over from your emotional brain to your logical brain. And then you can actually respond to it as opposed to reacting. When you respond, you're going to make a more confident decision no matter what the situation is. You're going to be able to better navigate relationships, work life, everything. Right. And you can make a focus on becoming a responder. Because human beings, we learn repetition. So when you do a new behavior over and over again, that's going to become more automatic for you and you're going to start feeling more secure. So when you're feeling anxiety, yes, is it nice to recognize what your attachment is? Sure. But at the end of the day, you know what anxiety feels like. And if you can just focus on becoming a responder rather than a reactor, regardless of your avoidant or if you're anxious or both, you can 
pull yourself into secure zone, which is where you ultimately want to be anyway. So recognize anxiety and then just be a responder to it. It's very simple. The only thing that's hard about it is the willpower and the dedication to do it consistently. But you do it consistently. It doesn't take all that long. You start to find yourself feeling more and more secure. Yeah. The interesting thing, I'm so glad that you're touching on the fact that even when you're secure, you kind of mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, like you still have normal human feelings, you know, like you're going to have days where you feel anxiety or you're going to get in a fight with your partner and you're going to feel anxious and whatever. But it's for me, it's been about how do I go? Where do I go in that moment? Like, what am I seeking to make me feel better? Because what I used to do when I was younger was think that my partner was the only route to me feeling better, which is the definition of anxious attachment, basically. Yes. And that was, but that was what I had learned through my life. And so over the years of doing all the work that I've done on myself, though, I now feel secure. And in my last relationship specifically, when I would get triggered, it wasn't like I never had the feelings that I had in the past or the same situations of like, you know, I've been cheated on before. So let's use that as as an example. But like, if something would happen in this relationship, there might be a slight trigger where I would go oh, wait, is this that thing again? But there were ways for me, like I learned enough new tools. Even sometimes it was going on a walk, like to just calm my nervous system. But learning the new tools to then respond to the trigger in that way. And then like you're saying, that begins to be what you crave as the response instead of just like going to the other person, going to the fight, going to like all the texting and blah, 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 whatever we would do if we were triggered in our anxious or avoidant attachment. Do you have anything to add to that or did I? Okay. And that's actually very true is that when you are, especially when you're an anxiously attached person, you tend to become a codependent. You are relying on the person to regulate your own feelings. Yes. At the end of the day, we are all responsible for our own feelings and our own happiness. You cannot make anybody feel anything and you can't make them do anything. You can't make them um, be happy or sad. You just can't. I mean, yeah. Look at all the stories you hear. Somebody who was, suddenly became rich and got millions upon millions of dollars, but they're still miserable because happiness is, a, is it's absolutely a, uh, a choice. Mm-hmm. And one of the mistakes that people uh, often have, and unfortunately, you'll find a lot of it on social media, um, pushing this idea that you find that you find and get happiness from another person. So if you are seeking happiness from another person, this is what happens. Usually the people that are seeking happiness from another person actually have inner unhappiness. Mm. And narcissists are very notorious for this, but other people can as well. So you get into a new relationship, the dopamine is flying, you're feeling great and you're feeling happy because you're in this brand new relationship, you have a shiny new toy. Well, the brain begins to regulate itself as a relationship progresses. And that unhealed trauma, the unhappiness that you have within starts to bubble back up to the surface. But you're in a relationship with that person. So it must be their fault that you're unhappy. Mm. So then you go to the next one. And then you're feeling happy again because you got the dopamine flowing from the new relationship. When that unhappiness comes back up, well, it's their fault. So if you are relying upon other people for your happiness, you're always going to be unhappy because you're never going to find it. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Because the dopamine wears off. So taking your own responsibility for your happiness and realizing that happiness is actually a choice will really help you have a healthier outlook on a relationship and understand that your partner's behavior cannot make you happy and they cannot make you sad. Just like you can't make them happy and you can't make them sad. What you can do for each other, however, 
is you can make an environment for your partner that makes it easier for them to choose happiness, but you can't make them choose it. Yeah. Well, let's, I want to touch really quick too on the fact that um, I know a lot of times before we work on healing our attachment styles, we end up creating the same relationships over and over, like we've mentioned before. And is it, is it true typically that like an anxious partner is always going to pick an avoidant and vice versa? Or do like, is it double avoidance can sometimes end, end up together or two anxious people? Like, how does that work? And are we kind of doomed to always repeat the same cycles? And then can we pick secure partners? How does that work? So first of all, it is common and very typical that anxious and avoidant attract each other. However, there are circumstances where anxious and anxious and, and avoidant and avoidant get into relationships with each other. Okay. At the end of the day, what's, what, what, is, what is really uh, very common is that insecure attracts insecure and secure attracts secure. So mm. people have a preconceived notion and the human mind likes to be proven right. So if somebody who is anxious already has the preconceived notion that they are too much in a relationship, that they are overwhelming. An avoidant typically has a preconceived notion that they are not enough in a relationship and they don't give enough. So when the avoidant and the anxious person get together, the anxious person confirms their fears by overwhelming the avoidant. And then the avoidant confirms their fears by not being good enough or not doing enough for the anxious person. So the human mind, even though it's something bad that you don't want, likes to be confirmed correct. You like to be validated. So you're yeah. validating yourself by picking a partner that confirms your fears. It's all subconscious and it gravitates you towards the kind of personality that's going to confirm your fears. Now, it's interesting, though, very interesting when two avoidants get into a relationship with each other. Every person is different. So this is when I'm talking about two avoidants, two anxious people, I'm talking in very generic terms because each individual person is still unique. So everybody's different. Not everybody behaves in the same way. But generally, when two avoidants get into a relationship, whoever is the more mildly avoidant person tends to start to become anxious. And then when two anxious people get into a relationship, whoever is more mildly anxious tends to start becoming avoidant. Mm, okay. So then if we do our work, and this is obviously like a selfish question, but I'm like, we do our work, we start resonating as secure. Do you feel like you'll start attracting more secure partners once you get back into dating? Yes. And you'll be able to also better recognize the insecure ones. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, somebody with mild insecurities does not mean they're a bad partner. No, and sure. Someone, even with somebody with deeper insecurities can actually still be a good partner. The difference is if this person has insecurities, are they able to take ownership of it and make corrective actions and, and work towards it? If, they, if they're an insecure person, but they recognize it and they're able to put the brakes on themselves and, 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 and they're working on regulating themselves, they can be a good partner. It's the ones that stick their head in the sand and don't do the work that are, are mm -hmm. going to be the product. But I mean, it's there's some crazy stats out there. Um, there's a recent study that was done that shows about 50% of the U.S. population, men and women, are either insecurely attached or narcissistic. So that's a lot of people. That's now, a lot. Yeah. Or now, narcissistic? Or narcissistic, yes. That is, or, okay. 50% of the, uh, the population is more what you call secure-based. So there are a lot of healthy people out there. The key is to start looking for red flags and be able to pick up on these insecurities. Yeah. To, Wasting time on the wrong person. Because guess what? When people show you show you who they are, believe them. Because mm -hmm. you're ignoring red flags that you clearly see. Well, you're going to pay the consequences. Uh, usually you do. Everybody might pop up a red flag here and there, even a secure person. But you know, when it's red flag after red flag and you're seeing all these signs, just because you wish this person to be something different doesn't mean they are. Yeah. And I'll tell you the two biggest red flags for somebody who's an avoidant. Okay. 
One is when they are fiercely independent. And often, even on their dating profile, they'll boast about being fiercely independent. Now, sounds like a good thing. People can easily miss this as a red flag because being an independent adult is a good thing. You should be an independent, autonomous person if you're an adult. You should be able to support yourself. It is the insecure avoidant that feels the need to assert it because they have fear of engulfment. They have, they have fear of losing their independence to a partner who's ultimately going to abandon and reject them. So they announce their independence because of their insecurities. A secure person doesn't feel the need to announce their independence because it should be a given. The analogy I like to use is if you're a parent, that'd be the equivalent of telling people, hey, guess what? I feed my kids. Well, yeah, it's a good thing to feed your kids, but why are you bragging about it? It should be a given. Right, like you should do so, that anyway. Right, so- that's the same thing that the avoidant is doing there. They're announcing independence when it, you should be independent as an mm -hmm. adult. If you're 40 years old, you shouldn't be living in mom's basement. So it's no offense to those who are. But <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, So the other uh, red flag that they often tend to, uh, to give is the wall, the guard. Yeah. They've been hurt in the past and they have a wall up and it takes some time to bring that guard down. What they're really telling you is that guard is Fort Knox and you're not getting in and that they are emotionally unavailable because a, a secure person should have a bit of a guard, a healthy guard, mm -hmm. a, um, essentially a healthy skepticism going into a relationship because you don't know the person yet, but the secure person doesn't feel the need to assert it. It mm -hmm. is the insecure, emotionally unavailable avoidant that feels the need to assert about that guard. The other interesting thing I'm thinking as you say that is, isn't it? it kind of an indicator that someone doesn't have a lot of self-trust because if you're putting all these boundaries up at the beginning, you're not trusting yourself to walk into the relationship and be like, Whoa, that feels like a lot. I need to take a step back or, you know, that feels like it's intro encroaching on my independence or whatever. Like, I don't know how to exactly make sense of what is popping up for me, but I've found that the more I trust myself to make good decisions, the more freedom I have in relationships really, because I can walk into it without the fear of like, oh, but what if this happens? Or what if they get too demanding on me? Then I got to, I'm going to have to set confidence. a boundary. Right. Because it, when people are putting stuff out there, really asserting their independence, yeah. their fears, their, their, their guard, what they're really doing is they're telling you I'm insecure. Yeah. And I'm that you're going to, um, to, that you're going to do something to, to push my insecurities to, mm -hmm. to you know, defensive. So they're really telling you that they're insecure. A secure person doesn't feel the need to make those kind of, uh, no. you know, a secure person is going to have confidence in themselves and trust in themselves to navigate the relationship should anything arise. Yeah, exactly. Like when it comes up, then you could talk about it or you have the tools to deal with it versus like having to say the thing, the pre thing or whatever before to warn you so that when it happens, you don't have any sort of response, I guess. Exactly. So that's that's the difference. It's not that a secure person doesn't feel anxiety. They do. Yeah. A secure person has the tools in their tool belt. They have the weapons in their arsenal to navigate anxiety in a healthy way, whereas the insecure people have a hard time with that. That's it. You just said it in the perfect way. This is why I love your work. See, you you sum up everything I'm thinking. I'm like, that is how I should have said that. Yes, that was great. Um, Coach Ryan, if people want to follow along or they're listening and they're thinking, okay, I need to know a lot more, where can they find you? You know, they can find me on um, on both TikTok and Instagram. Um, you know, working towards getting on some other platforms too. But you'll find me on uh, both uh, TikTok and Instagram as Coach Ryan. Um, Coach Ryan. 
Oh, trying. And um, I'm posting videos out there every day, trying to uh, spread as much information as I can. And there's also links in my bios if anybody wants to uh, book a session with me. It's coachryanllc.com. And I do one-on-one Zoom video sessions with people too. Amazing. I'll put all of that in the description of this podcast for you guys. Thank you for being here with us. I know a lot of people might have questions about avoidant attachment. So hit up Coach Ryan. I'll put his links again in the description of his podcast. Thanks, Coach Ryan. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Velvet's Edge podcast with Kelly Henderson, where we believe everyone has a little velvet and a little edge. Subscribe for more conversations on life, style, beauty, and relationships. Search Velvet's Edge wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast! podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.